The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Returning to a continued study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We have worked our way through chapter 5 over a period of months. I can promise we'll move a bit faster in chapter 6 and 7 because the text breaks down into somewhat larger units to deal with. Today you could say that the first 18 verses of Matthew 6 are a unit, but what I'm going to do is exclude a middle part of it that contains the Lord's Prayer and deal with that separately next week, Lord willing. So I will read Matthew 6, 1 through 6, or I'm sorry, 1 through 8, and then pick up 16 through 18, and we will come back to the part that I do not read. Listen to God's holy word. Jesus is the speaker. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Move down to verse 16. And when you do fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God. I think you probably have to be at least perhaps 50 years old or so or else a high-power sports fan to know the name of a former head football coach, Bud Wilkinson, who led the University of Oklahoma Sooners football team from 1947 to 1963. I can remember watching Saturday afternoon football games with the Oklahoma Sooners 
coached by Bud Wilkinson in the 50s and I guess up to the early 60s when I was still a child or coming close to my teen years. Trying to stop a Sooners team coached by Bud Wilkinson, one person said, was like trying to stop an avalanche. He was simply a very superior coach. His teams earned an overall career win percentage of 82%. Any coach with that percentage could make millions today. They earned three straight undefeated seasons. They had three national championships and 14 conference championships. But the thing that was remarkable about Bud Wilkinson's teams there in Oklahoma was an internal dynamic that went on that people became aware of. They were excellent teams, well-recruited, well-trained. They played very well on the football field, of course. But the reason they played as well as they did came to light after a while when people observed this team and saw that the players weren't so much simply performing for the 50,000-some fans that typically filled their Oklahoma stadium. It was evident that these players cared very much about what did Coach Wilkinson think of my, of my play today because he kept detailed notes on tackles and blocks and runs and moves of each player, what they were doing, and he distributed praise to the players according to what they had done. And they seemed to prize his praise more than any accolade from sports writers or whatever the newspapers had to say about them. I think of that because it seems our text is saying here, or really asking us a question, before what audience do you live your life? Is the audience for your piety, for your acts of Christian worship, giving, service, done for the people around you in the church or in the community or in your family? Whose praise are you looking for? Your peers? Do you want people to say, oh, hey, wow, what a deacon he is, what an elder he is, what a deaconess she is in the church. Amazing how holy that individual is. Or are you mindful of approval only from the infinite personal God, your Savior. We've said that the three chapters that compose the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, are not a rule book telling you how to live. Some people think of them as kind of like the New Testament version of the Ten Commandments, and they say, well, here Jesus is saying, live this way, do these things, and you'll be a Christian. That's backwards. What he's saying is those who already are believers in Christ with a new life and the Holy Spirit indwelling them, having remade them to trust Jesus as Lord, this is what they behave like. This is how you recognize them. A Christian behaves this way, as living in the presence of God, in submission to God, and in dependence upon God. And so Christ mentions here three areas of practical piety, giving, prayer, and fasting. The third of those I'll put the least emphasis on today because it probably does not have the kind of uh, common position in our 
responses to God as it once did in New Testament days. But certainly giving and prayer are very relevant to how we relate to God. And you see this phrase again and again three times in this text. Watch out that you do not do your righteousness in front of other people just to be noticed by them. If you do that, you'll have all the reward you're going to get. You won't have a reward from your Father in heaven. I've seen my way through enough grandchildren, 14 grandchildren, and they're moving up in years now, but I still have a couple, one or two preschoolers. And I know enough to expect something that happens when they're little. And uh, Grandma and Papa, is my name, come and visit, and a a little three-year-old would say to, to one of us, Papa, watch me. And I know that means something great some kind of a performance. A cartwheel that they couldn't do before, a ballet move or something is about to be executed and I'd better watch and be ready to applaud. Watch me. Well, Jesus is saying there are Christians who behave that way. Everybody, watch me. Look how often I pray. Look how obvious I am in my devotion to God. And we perform some kind of a theatrical righteousness that cares most about people who are looking. The Greek language had a word, hypocritus, which you can figure out pretty easily what it means, hypocrite. In the symbol of the Greek theater, many of you can have seen, of course, over the years, the symbolic representation of ancient theater. It's two masks, one that is smiling, one that is frowning, And in the Greek theater, it was all men were the actors, they literally would hold a mask on a stick and they either perhaps had a sad character, a tragic character, or a happy character. They wore the mask. They were a hypocrite because they were pretending to be someone that they were not. That's where the word came from. But Jesus, of course, was talking about religious hypocrites, people who deceived others, attempted to anyway, and maybe were even self-deceived, pretending to be something that they weren't. They were always looking to one side to say, who's watching me now? Dr. John Stott, a great commentator on the Bible, said, we can bluff a human audience, and they may be taken in by our performance. We can fool them into thinking We are 100% genuine in our giving, our praying, our fasting, when really we're just acting. But God is never mocked. We don't deceive him. Stott said he looks only and always on the heart. Now, as the first of these three subjects today, seeing how Jesus works this theme out, we see how not to give. Notice Jesus doesn't say, as a disciple of Christ, you must give. There's no promotional speech here saying, all good Christians give. He takes it for granted that people of God give to the causes of God, whether that be the church offering plate or some scheme to help uh, the poor and disadvantaged, whatever it is. God's people are giving people. But there are ways not to give as well as right ways to give. Many of you are graduates of some college or university or medical school or graduate school, and uh, I'm sure you get alumni publications from those places, whatever they are. 
And I would guess that if we compared all the alumni publications that come to all the mailboxes of this congregation, we'd find a sort of commonality about them. There'll be a a message from the president in the front or the dean. Uh, There'll be news of the campus, uh, maybe something about new building going up, new program launched, but and maybe there'll be uh, deaths or uh, career notes about uh, alumni. But somewhere in it, there'll be something about a giving scheme or memorial gifts that have been given. And what you'll very often see in these publications, no matter what school it represents, is that the giving is kind of ranked, right? Maybe there's a building program going on and the school has made many appeals, so this is going to report who has given what. Now, somebody has given $3 million, and uh, they don't have to report that gift because that person's already got their name on the building, or else uh, perhaps they're due for an honorary doctorate that year. I I remember an experience of my own naivete when I was first member of a board of trustees of a seminary, and we were, my first or second year doing that, uh, we were deciding who was going to get honorary doctorates the next year. And the discussion went on. Various names were put forward. I didn't recognize any of these people as great scholars or authors. And so I rather foolishly attempted a question and said, could someone just tell me, you know, what are these folks, why are they deserving of an honorary doctorate? And everybody sort of looked at each other. You know, the president looked at the dean and the dean looked at me and it was like, Rogers, don't you know? These are the big donors. They get honorary doctorates. I learned that and kept my mouth shut after that. Well, you know, if you look in that alumni publication, it's, it's probable that the gifts are kind of ranked as they're reported, right? If somebody gave, oh, let's say, uh, over 500000 well, that's the chancellor's club. And then somebody gave 250000 That's the president's club. And then somebody gave 100000 That's the dean's list. And somebody gave 10000 And I don't know what that is, you know, the departmental award or something. And you work your way all the way down to somebody who gave $25. And that's the custodian's club, I think, or something <laughs> like that. But uh, I didn't know what to call that. But you see what's happening every time you get it that way. And I'm sure all of you have seen this kind of thing. What's going on? They're appealing to human pride to sponsor giving. Because who doesn't want to be in the chancellor's club or the the president's club? And you want your old classmates to look and say, oh, look at that. Walt Mueller gave $100,000. He's he's way up there. Boy, what prestige he enjoys. Gotcha, Walt. (laughs) You're always getting me, so I get you. What kind of a scheme is that, though? What is it appealing to? It's appealing to pride. It's saying, wouldn't you like to be, you know, in a position where you look admirable and and you look, you know, like you're the most generous person of all? This is contrary to what Jesus is saying. He says, when you give, not if you give, when you do. He takes for granted that you will give sacrificially. He's not promoting how much here, but he's saying the manner of your gift matters, that you're not pasting it on a billboard at the side of the highway for everybody to praise you. Elsewhere, the New Testament talks about those who 
they had collection boxes in those days, and some would be naturally made of metal in the temple, and people would come by, and those who could afford it had the biggest coins, you know, and they'd make sure they dropped the big coin in, and it would ring, you know, you could hear that thing go in there, not like a little penny slipping in unnoticed. And Jesus said, don't give your gift that way to be noticed, to make the loudest noise in the box. If you do that notice, that honor, that momentary blessing, if you call it a blessing, is all you will get out of it. Even if you give the two million that names the building, let me tell you, one day the moss is going to grow in the inscribed letters carved over the door, the Rogers Memorial Hall. The moss will fill it in and nobody will know what, what you did. Is your motive to build your reputation and your pride or to give quietly and self-sacrificially before God? And this is a complex issue. You know, it's not, it's not only parading it in front of other people. There's the complexity that you can even be parading things before yourself. Now, let me tell you, this is, this is very uh, understandable by me and anyone who speaks or leads in worship or public prayer. I, I could be here right now, words are coming out of my mouth that I hope are true to Scripture, that are positively instructional to you and, and in accord with what the Bible has to say, but uh, there's another track playing in my mind, and that track is, how am I doing? You know, is this a, is this a great sermon or what? And are people going to go away praising me? That is a tremendous field of temptation for those who lead in worship to want our performance in public worship to be something that others would approve. Of course, we, we can't avoid this completely. We're human. What do, we, what do other people think of me? What do they say about me? But Jesus says, get rid of that. Don't live on that. That isn't what matters. Be true to what the Lord wants you to say as you lead his people in worship. Jesus says, don't blow a trumpet when you're going to the offering box. Now, of course, nobody would literally do that, but we can well picture how that kind of thing could go on. John Stott again comments here, Christian giving, he said, is to be marked by self-sacrifice, self-forgetfulness, and never by self-congratulation. That's the essence, I think, of what Jesus is getting at here. He said over and over in this text, your father sees what is done in secret. He will reward you. Now here, as in other places, the eternal aspect of God's reward for faithful disciples isn't spelled out. It isn't said, you know, God has the archangel award and the you know, the, uh, I don't know, the Angel Gabriel Award and this reward and the Heavenly Gates Award. No, we're not told what the awards are. But we are told that faithfulness will be rewarded in eternity by our God. What form that takes, we don't need to know. It's, I think, deliberately kept vague. So we wouldn't dwell on it and lust after it, but we would simply be faithful and let God reward us as he would. Every now and then you've heard about our little dog. Maybe you wonder what happened to her. She hasn't been reported on in quite a while. But we still have our dog, Hazel. She's recently made a move with us and gone deaf. 
But uh, she's a little bewildered because she doesn't live in the same neighborhood anymore. And she had our old neighborhood down pat. My wife would take Hazel out for a walk. And uh, that was a neighborhood with quite a few retired folks, as our present neighborhood is. And many of these folks would be out working in their flower beds or trimming the lawn or getting their mail or something. And they were dog lovers. And several of them kept a box of dog biscuits in their garage just for doggies like Hazel making their rounds, you know. And Hazel would have to have a visit and get a biscuit. Well, Hazel knew every single house that had these biscuits. And uh, my wife said, you know, she would pause in that driveway and look all around. Is anybody doing the gardening here? And if she spotted the homeowner, she would stop and sit and wait for them to bring the biscuit. And she could come back from a single walk with three or four dog biscuits sometimes. She knew how to work the rewards. And maybe we can be like that. We know how to please people or have a good reputation before people. Maybe you know how to, at least others might feel like you're an eloquent one for prayer in your home Bible study or your home fellowship circle. Oh, that lady really knows how to pray. Be careful that you don't exist for that or seek after that. In fact, you could even be sinning in a rather subtle but important way. Well, secondly, our text has Jesus instruct us about how not to pray. The power of a negative example here. The Bible, by the way, often teaches by by way of negative example just as much as positive. I've said to people that there's more teaching about marriage in the Bible from negative instances, bad behavior in marriage, as there is of good positive behavior. The dysfunctional example can teach us as well. Jesus said, if you're praying, don't pray like these people. How was that? Well, first of all, they positioned themselves to make sure they'd be noticed. And this is primarily Jewish leadership. Jesus was talking about in the synagogue, on the street corners. You can kind of picture they wore their long robes, probably something like I've got on right now. And they stood and had their hands and said, Oh, God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they made sure everybody knew they were praying in demonstrative ways. And Jesus said they're doing that simply for public grandstanding. They're not doing it out of piety. He said the way you should do it is to go into your house, find a quiet place, get alone with God, and speak to him in all sincerity and transparency. In those days, most houses that people would have lived in only had one or two rooms. If they had something called a closet, it would be like a small storeroom, maybe where food and precious things were kept, perhaps a place that could be locked up. And it would be small. And if you had a family with children and so on, that might be that little storeroom might be the only place you could go to be by yourself, alone with God. And Jesus said, go, find that place Get alone and speak with your God. I've many times said from this pulpit that the modern equivalent for many of us that's really quite a practical place to pray is your automobile. Other than keeping your eyes open, it fits the bill quite well. To be alone, speak aloud. I talk in the car to God a lot. Every once in a while I see somebody looking at me, but 
I'm no worse off than the guy who's there singing away with, you know, 60s ballads or something, and he's playing his air guitar while he does it. I'm talking to God. By the way, why do we shut our eyes when we pray? Did you ever think about that one? I wondered as a child, why does everybody shut their eyes? Well, isn't it an instinctive realization that we want to shut out distraction? We want to not be looking at other people and wondering what they're thinking or what's going on just outside the window or something. We don't want to be preoccupied with anything other than the Lord. Now, I find there are many people who would even think that a passage like this, Jesus is saying, uh, people like this passage because they say, look, Jesus says, don't pray in public. No, he didn't exactly say, don't pray in public. But he said, when you do pray in public, pray with a concentration on the Lord, not the public. And some people have a real problem with prayer when other people are around, and that's all right. We understand that, although it's something you should grow out of over the years. But the big thing is, who are you talking to? Are you talking to bystanders or talking to the Lord? And you can be honest with him. You can be transparent with him. You can speak to him as you would to your best friend, and that's the essential of prayer, not what the neighbors think or what the onlookers think. Now, the third dimension of this I'm not going to spend much time on because fasting doesn't have a big place in our piety today. It probably is something we should do more than we do, denying ourselves perhaps food for a season in order to concentrate on prayer. But Jesus says you can do this, a good thing to do. The Old Testament has many examples of fasts in order to commit yourself to the Lord for a period of time. Often it has to do with repentance or sorrow for sin, but it's not something to be done to earn merit for yourself. You think of Jesus' most radical fast of 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. I've often marveled over that. I remember studying something about deprivation of food, and experts, nutritionists, will tell you that the human body it starts breaking down vital tissue beyond about 40 days if it does not receive nourishment. That's about as long as a body can go. You can't go that long without water, but you might go that long without food. But we won't develop fasting too much this morning. The point is, here too, you can put ashes on your face and look miserable and moan and groan about how you're suffering in order to pray. And what are you trying to do? Impress people? Who is the audience for that? Is God the audience? Or is other people the audience? Who forms the audience before which we live our lives is really the simple theme and backbone of this entire passage. And the deceitfulness of my own heart is so great that even I could be your preacher and be preaching all the time, thinking, oh, that was a well-turned phrase I just had. I hope people appreciated that. You see how deceitful and wicked our hearts are? We can lead others in worship and be wanting praise and wanting to heap up people's delight in us, not the Lord. You know, some people see a contradiction quickly as I conclude here. And they would point back to chapter 5 of our text, Matthew 5, verse 16, and say, well, didn't Jesus say, 
let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't that in contradiction with what Jesus is saying now? No, I don't think so. I think he's saying that if you're living a Christian life, the Holy Spirit making you a new creation, teaching you, maturing you, bringing out principles of Christian growth, your life will naturally be so different that you won't be able to completely hide the difference of your character, the difference of your schedule, your entertainments, where you go, how you spend your Sunday, and many other things. But that doesn't mean you have to be involved in the theatrical display to act out an exaggerated Christian life that isn't true to what you are. There's no contradiction between Matthew 5.16 and what we read here in chapter 6. When a Christian life is controlled by the Holy Spirit, the difference will stand out. We won't have to work at it. It's just there. It's self-evident. These things cannot be completely hidden, and we shouldn't try to disguise who and what we are, but we should never be putting on an act. Is your life a life that aims to please the Lord first and foremost? Colossians 3.3 says to Christian disciples, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You and God are bound together in a way that he is the great influencer over you. You're under his gaze. You live in the Latin phrase, coram Deo, before the eyes of God. His eyes, his approval, should be the one great thing that you crave to please day by day as Christ works in you. Father, help us. We are great hypocrites. We can't hear what Jesus said here and say, well, those hypocrites, we're the hypocrites. We're sometimes even in our Sunday exercises, perhaps trying hard to impress somebody, to sound the right notes, to strike the right pose. Help us, O oh God, to be transparently honest before you, to submit to your word, to respond to your Holy Spirit, to desire your pleasing smile, your look, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what we seek. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful as Christ works in us. For his sake we ask. Amen.